Welcome to Vet Talk with Royal Canin, where we will address an array of topics relevant to veterinarians and veterinary clinics. I'm Brenda Andreessen, Chief Strategy Officer at Stevens & Associates, and your host for this conversation. I'm happy to partner with Royal Canin to share knowledge and perhaps a few useful tips to help each of you in your practice. Many dogs and cats present to veterinary emergency services with a variety of types of illnesses, and addressing the clinical and nutritional needs of these animals is critical to their management and their recovery. This episode of Vet Talk with Royal Canin is a part of our special nutrition series, and today we will discuss the importance of nutrition in critical care cases. Joining me today are Dr. Lindsay Boland. Hello, Dr. Boland. Hello. Thank you so much for having me today. Thanks for being here. Dr. Megan Sprinkle. Hello. I'm excited to be here. Great. And Dr. Craig Datz. Hi, everyone. Glad to have everyone. Welcome to everybody. So let's start with just a little bit of background from each of you. If you would, please just share a tiny bit about your background and how you became interested in veterinary nutrition in the first place. And so Dr. Bullen, let's start with you. So my background is 100% at NC State University. I did my undergrad there um, in both chemistry and zoology. And then I was fortunate enough to go to veterinary school there. After vet school, I did a rotating internship with the goal of eventually being a surgeon. However, I took a couple nutrition electives um, and ended up really focusing on nutrition during my internship because I loved what a puzzle it was. Every single patient has to eat. Um, you, you, you can't survive without nutrition and you can't live optimally without appropriate nutrition. And every aspect of it was exciting. I got to do math, which I'm a dork. And so I really enjoyed the math aspect. I got to teach. And that is the biggest part of my job today is I get to educate my clients, my colleagues, my staff. So really, I found my calling during my internship. And then after my internship, I was fortunate enough to get a nutrition residency also at NC State. And then I decided to stay on for a nutrition postdoc also at NC State. <laughs> And so I created the clinical nutrition service just a few miles down the road at the veterinary specialty hospitals of the Carolinas. And I've been working there for the past three years as the head of the department. Well, Dr. Sprinkle, tell us a little bit about your background and what brought you to nutrition. For my veterinary degree, I went to Auburn University and went in thinking I was going to be a zoo veterinarian. So a lot of my background is actually working with a lot of different animal species. But through that process, I, I started to realize how interesting nutrition was, similarly to Lindsay, that it is a puzzle. And there, it wasn't really talked about very much in vet school. And so I really got an interest there and probably a little bit of an interest on a, a human nutrition side. I, I'm very interested in, in health and well-being for, for me, myself, too. But it, it evolved and I went on to do an internship at a, a, a local referral hospital in Chattanooga and then went on to do a residency at the University of Missouri in clinical nutrition and fell in love with it. At, once I was in my residency, I realized I was having fun and I had finally found my, my place in, in medicine. And so I've loved it ever since. And, and now I've been working with Royal Canaan for three years, being able to use my, my uh, specialty background in teaching education and promoting the amazing um, field of nutrition for, for cats and dogs. Certainly a common theme. Dr. Datz, what's your background and what brought you into nutrition? 
Oh, mine is a little different. I went from vet school, graduated from Virginia Tech uh, way back when, and I went into general practice and I did that for and some emergency practice for about 14 years. And then I joined the University of Missouri uh, faculty and community practice. Um, a few years later, I think I had a midlife crisis and I had an opportunity to do a, a part-time nutrition residency. So it took me about a little over five years to complete all the requirements and become a nutritionist. Um, from the University of Missouri. And then, and then I left before uh, Dr. Sprinkle joined, but I, I joined Royal Canaan about eight years ago. So I've been the, been here ever since. I'm now the Director of Scientific Affairs for Royal Canaan USA. Well, it's clear that the three of you have a great affinity for nutrition, have made extra effort um, to educate yourselves in that area. So let's talk a little bit about what kind of education you actually received while you were in veterinary school and what kind of education you wish you had received. So Dr. Datz, let's start with you. We had about a week of clinical nutrition, as I can recall, and then some of our various services, you know, internal medicine and surgery would uh, talk a little bit about nutrition, but it was it was very, very minute bit of nutrition. Um, when I got out in practice, I was interested in pet foods. I was interested in using nutrition for various disorders. I thought I was fairly knowledgeable. I went to continuing education about nutrition, but it wasn't until I started actually studying um, the field of nutrition specifically, I realized how much I didn't know and how much I thought I was good at. I really wasn't good at it at all. Do you, is there anything specific you wish that they had given you to help, help make it a little easier for you to launch into the path? Um, nutrition can be a uh, rather dull science to study because you're studying like biochemistry, you're studying nutrients, chemical reactions, and it brings back uh, horror stories of organic chemistry and biochem courses that a lot of veterinary students don't enjoy. So tying it to real life diseases and disorders is probably what really grabs a lot of interest. And I think that uh, instead of teaching the kind of real basic, which is very important, the basics, you have to learn the fundamentals before you can get onto the clinical, um, but kind of trying to tie in some actual interesting uh, diseases, disorders of pet animals, horses, livestock, food animals. It's all super interesting once you make that connection. Makes sense. Dr. Sprinkle, um, how about you? What's your experience been? So where I went to vet school, it was very similar. We had um, we, we had some nutrition when it came to large animal like livestock, but when it came to small animals, we really didn't have a whole lot of, of nutrition uh, focus. I think we had maybe a couple of days of, of a lab <laughs> with nutrition, but that was pretty much the extent of it. And I think what I wish I had more of was how common of a conversation this would be in practice and how often veterinarians are going to get asked from pet owners around nutrition because it's something that they do every day. They feed their dog every day. And so that's something that they're very, very interested in. And so just understanding that it's one, it's going to be a common conversation and two, maybe the skills around having that conversation would, would have been very helpful um, because I think that can be a barrier uh, for some veterinarians is that they, they don't know how to go in depth into a nutrition conversation when they may not feel like they have time, but just the foundation of basic nutritional assessments um, and how important that is for every pet, every visit is, is really crucial. So Dr. Boland, it sounds like you maybe had a deeper dive into nutrition as you were in veterinary school, but you know, tell us a little bit about that and, and tell us what, what you wish you had received that you didn't too. 
So I would say I'm spoiled. I was incredibly fortunate to have a board certified veterinary nutritionist at NC State. Um, I didn't even know that nutrition was a specialty and I wouldn't have if it hadn't been for Dr. Corinne Saker, who's one of my mentors. Um, so we took a full uh, semester of nutrition. And like Dr. Dot said, it's really challenging to make basic nutrition sexy. <laughs> um, you, you know, it's at eight in the morning because nobody wants that slot. Um, it's what is a protein? What is a fat? And everybody is like, oh, come on, I'm going to be a vet. Why do, why do I need to know this stuff? Right. Um, but I, I was fortunate. And even though I didn't love the basic nutrition class, they offered advanced nutrition electives um, and selectives. And so I was really able to see the clinical application, which is what piqued my interest. Um, and then as both Dr. Dots and um, Dr. Sprinkle said, you know, that communication aspect, that is something that I love to do. I'm sure you all will figure this out, but I love to talk and I love to teach and, and being able to educate on not just a daily basis, but literally an hourly basis or a minute basis um, is something that really, you know, really grabbed my attention. So not every vet school is as fortunate as NC State is. Um, and I know that there is varying degrees of, you know, administrative support. And that is one thing I wish we had more of. I wish we had more administrative support of the clinical nutrition service. Um, but that is something that we as nutritionists have to do is to educate our colleagues on the importance of having us there. You know, I, I've had to learn how to justify my position um, throughout my entire very, you know, short, but um, hopefully will be long career. And I used to say, oh, I'm a specialist in nutrition. I'm a specialist in nutrition. You know, why are people having trouble with this? But really, I'm a specialist in biochemistry. I'm a specialist in nutrient metabolism. And I treat disease with food. And that is what I do. I can diagnose like any other medical doctor and potentially, you know, better than some because we have that intensive biochemistry chemistry and metabolism background. Um, and so, you know, having that administrative support and having the collaboration between services, I think would have made, you know, a much bigger difference for me. But for people that nutrition wasn't exciting for, you know, it would have been amazing if the different specialists that taught our classes said, hey, I'm going to teach liver disease this week. And then in nutrition, we could talk about liver disease and how we can, you know, medically and nutritionally treat that or surgically, you know, whatever. Um, but that type of that type of collaboration across services is so important out in the veterinary world. You know, it would be it would be wonderful if we could work together to support everybody's field all with the goal of benefiting the patient and benefiting the client. This is such an important conversation to be having, right? There's, there's so much application across um, every case that everybody sees. So let's dig right in. I'm really curious, Dr. Bolin, how do you explain the importance of nutrition when you're in a critical care setting? That is a wonderful question. <laughs> how do you explain why air is important? <laughs> Um, so typically what I will discuss with my colleagues and my clients is that nutrition is akin to, to gas or to fuel. You have to have nutrition to make the body go. You have to have gas to make the car go. But if you put diesel in a gas engine, it will not go well and it may not go far. And that is the same thing that happens in a critical care setting. These patients are malnourished for any number of reasons and that is compounded by their critical or chronic disease states. And if we put the wrong nutrition into their body, 
it might not help them recover. And in some cases, it might actually do more harm than good. And so involving somebody who is an expert in nutrition um, with these cases, every single one of them, to make sure that we are optimizing the patient's well-being um, is going to be critical, um, no pun intended, to, to the, um, to the uh, survival of these critical care patients. And, and what I will often tell people is that otherwise healthy animals can often tolerate poor and appropriate nutrition in the short term with minimal to no impact on their metabolic um, needs, their metabolic processes. Um, however, when these patients are critically ill, you will see any number of metabolic disturbances like insulin resistance. You can see altered response to medications like chemotherapies and antibiotics. You can see generalized weakness. Um, and in our cases, I think one of the biggest things of starting nutrition early is it has actually been linked to improving outcome and to getting out of the hospital in less days. And for our patients that can actually be the determinant of life or death. So if we have a client that's running out of money, if you start nutrition early, they are more likely to get out of the hospital early than if you delay nutrition and then the client runs out of money and they can't proceed with treatment. Um, and, and it's heartbreaking. It's absolutely heartbreaking when that happens. And I, I tell people, you know, I, I wish I had a cape, I wish I was a superhero. Um, nutrition very, very rarely cures a disease state just flat out, but it absolutely has been shown to augment all of those clinical outcomes as a, basically as a, a conjunction with appropriate medical and surgical therapy. If you combined all three aspects for the patients, you truly have a holistic and a collaborative approach and that pet will be getting optimal care. But if you leave out nutrition, then they are not going to be given the best chance because they do not have the nutrients to heal. They are going to be taking from their own internal stores. And that in and of itself is going to be incredibly detrimental and is not conducive to life. Lindsay, being in private practice, what are some of the most common cases that you as a nutritionist get involved in, in the critical care setting? Uh, that is also a wonderful question. Thank you for asking. Um, so I'm very fortunate. I work at a specialty practice where we have multiple specialties all collaborating together. And so I get to see a myriad of cases. Most of the ones that I see tend to be um, within the internal medicine or critical care services. And that would be anything from an unregulated diabetic um, that's suffering from DKA or diabetic ketoacidosis to severe necrotic pancreatitis um, or obstructed gallbladders and common bile ducts. Uh, we have a cat right now with severe pulmonary disease um, and then renal disease, I would say, is something that we see a lot. And a lot of those patients ultimately end up with assisted feeding tubes um, to help, again, augment their clinical therapies. From a critical care setting, um, we might see hit by cars or um, any sort of traumas, things like that, that require long-term care. But for the most part, they tend to be more metabolic derangements um, that are in our critical care setting. So, Lindsay, most sick animals have a decreased appetite or sometimes their appetite's totally gone and they're, and they're completely anorectic. How do you get a good diet history on those kinds of cases so you can do your nutritional assessment on a critical patient or any sick patient? And then how do you incorporate their need to eat into your plan like day after day? So um, that, that's actually very challenging, especially with COVID. 
as an ancillary service, because I don't have primary case management, we will not often directly reach out to the client if we are not the primary clinician. However, we do reach out to the primary clinician and their intern and their nurse and say, hey, we would love a full dietary history. Um, we think we can do a better job if we had XYZ information. And so, for example, if we had um, a puppy come in that was encephalopathic and it turns out they had a liver shunt, I would want to know what diet they were on that caused them to be encephalopathic. Are they on already a low moderate protein or are they on a super high protein diet? Because that might actually tell me what protein level I could start at um, based on where they are. Because regardless, I'm going to want to drop it, but I don't want to drop it too much because the puppy is growing. Um, so that would be an example of a case where I would want additional information. Um, truth be told, I am so fortunate to have full uh, two full-time nurses that are almost as passionate <laughs> about nutrition as I am. And even if they are not our primary case, they will pick up the phone and they will call clients to get the information that we need. So my nurses um, are incredible. They go above and beyond. We always want to make sure that the primary clinician is aware that we're doing that because um, we want to collaborate together. And so we always inform them if we're going to do something like that. Um, but it is really important for me to get that type of information. The other thing is when we are talking about indications for assisted feeding. So my personal rule of thumb is if they are getting inappropriate nutrition um, and inappropriate calorie consumption for less or for about three days, they need to have that conversation about assisted feeding. And the challenge is quantifying how much is not enough. And so we will get, you know, clients and clinicians alike that say, well, that great Dane ate a bite of baby food. So they're not anorexic, they're eating. And then we have to educate and say, you're correct, they are technically eating, but that Great Dane needs 1,600 calories per day minimum, and one bite of turkey is 1.6 calories per gram, or baby food is you know, 16 calories per tablespoon or whatever it is. And so that pet is nutritionally anorexic. They are not getting the nutrients they need to support their normal metabolism, and they are absolutely not getting the nutrients and, and energy that they need to support you know, healing and recovery. And so trying to get that information from the client can be tricky, but it is so important for them to try to quantify as best they can how much the pet is actually getting and of what. Because that's another thing. If we have animals that will no longer eat a complete and balanced commercial product, but they're eating you know, handfuls of human food, maybe they need a tailored homemade diet. And that's an option. But just by itself, handfuls of rice and chicken in the short term, for a healthy animal might not be that big a deal, but for these critically ill patients, it can make all the difference between them recovering or not recovering. And so having that information is really important for us to be able to um, provide accurate advice to our colleagues and to our clients and say, you know what? They haven't eaten in three days. Let's have that conversation about assisted feeding. Let's you know, educate the client that yes, it is stressful and we recognize their fear, and here are the cons, there are cons, but here are all of the pros of having this feeding tube in place. Um, you know, what are their goals for the pet? That's really important to understand. Is the feeding tube, you know, kind of their, their last step, yes or no? If it is, okay, then let's try some other options. But if not, let's place it sooner rather than later when they're still stable enough to undergo anesthesia. All of these conversations have to happen. 
And just to clarify your three-day um, rule of thumb, you said um, if, so, if an animal's in the hospital for three days and has need in the hospital, then it's time to intervene. But you also kind of want to know how long they didn't eat at home right before they came in. So it could Absolutely. be actually, it could be a 10-day period of anorexia, even though the your clinician may tell you this, this dog hasn't eaten for three days, you do have to go back and figure out have they eaten before they showed up at the hospital? So absolutely. So you hit three the days, on may, the head. that might be the day they show up at the hospital. It may be appropriate to start assisted feeding on day one and not always day three or day four. Exactly. So day three is total inside the hospital, outside of the hospital. And again, I'm fortunate enough that when I provide um, recommendations for all of our hospitalized patients, my nurses go through every single page of history and physical exam to say, hey, the client said that they haven't been eating for a week. And we have a flag at the very top of each of our recommendations that says strongly recommends assisted feeding. Your patient has been anorexic for whatever number of days it is. Um, and to be honest with you, because I know it takes about 24 hours for intake and for diagnostics to be run and they're fasted anyway, two days is now my marker. So if they come in with two days of anorexia and I know they're going to be fasted their first day here, I am already recommending assisted feeding, um, you know, whether it's a nasoenteric tube or if we know it's going to be a chronic, or chronic illness, rather potentially a surgically placed esophagostomy tube. Either way, we will make recommendations based on what the disease state is and how long they've been anorexic. Um, but again, the longer they're anorexic, that has actually been associated with an increased mortality rate on presentation. And so if we can intervene sooner rather than later, we are going to give them the best chance that they have to get out of the hospital. So you mentioned feeding tubes a couple of times here. If a veteran hasn't used feeding tubes, you're not comfortable with them. How do you uh, educate or how do you, do they have to go to a, a lab, a CE course? How do they learn to place feeding tubes or how do they get over their discomfort? Because maybe they weren't taught in veterinary school or maybe they didn't, they worked in practices where feeding tubes were not used. Do you have like a baby step <laughs> approach to that? <laughs> um, that? That is an awesome question. And that's something that I, I hear a lot. So I do actually have several PowerPoint presentations that give outline step-by-step -step instructions on placement of both nasoenteric and esophagostomy tubes. But I very much know that that is not the same thing as getting your hands on a patient. And so my recommendation, if a clinician is not comfortable with placing feeding tubes, um, is to take you know, active control and hold themselves accountable for getting that education. Go to CE courses where they actually have lab practicals. Um, you know, there are incredible um, hands-on tools now that aren't necessarily, you know, real animals. Some, some pace, uh, places rather, excuse me, will use cadavers, um, but there are some um, basically dummies, so to speak, where you can practice the placement of these tubes and, and they are not on um, what were once live animals. The other option is to potentially contact your local specialty hospital and say, hey, I would love to shadow the surgery service for a week or, you know, for, um, for however long you can get away or every Wednesday or, or shadow the internal medicine service just so I can see tube placements. You know, is that a possibility? And Unfortunately, during you know the pandemic right now, that that might not be a possibility. But if we can get it under control and, and people are still you know social distancing and wearing masks, um, especially if it is surgical, because everybody's wearing masks, right? 
then that might actually be an option in the future. But there are plenty of courses, um, you know, around the United States. And again, travel safely, follow, you know, your state guidelines and your comfort level. Um, but there are plenty of online courses that will show you visual, you know, placement and, and verbal placement. Um, there are courses where you can get hands-on experience, but you have to take, you have to hold yourself accountable um, to get the skills that you need because they truly are life-saving. And the truth is, if you're not comfortable with it, that's okay. I fully respect that. There are so many things that I'm not comfortable with. And at that point, I refer. If there is something that is outside my you know, scope of expertise, I'm not ashamed of that. I am really, really good at nutrition. I am really bad at surgery. I am really not great actually at general practice medication. Um, but nutrition-wise, I'm your girl for sure. But don't be afraid to refer that doesn't show weakness. It actually shows that you're collaborating and that you have your patient and your client's well-being at the top of the list, which is the most important. Um, but that being said, if there is a case that the client can't refer and you don't feel comfortable placing a surgical tube, nasogastric and nasoenteric tubes, um, I, I'm not going to say they're easy to place, but they are definitely easier than potentially esophagostomy tubes. They are safer in some regards than esophagostomy tubes because you might just need gentle sedation rather than full anesthesia. Regardless of what type of tube you place, I always strongly recommend um, orthogonal radiographs. You want to make sure that the tube is in the right place. It doesn't, uh, you need to ensure it's not in the trachea for sure. It's got to be in the esophagus. But if you, you know, place it and you look at those instructions, NE or NG tubes, those can be life-saving uh, and just give the animal some time with it and then maybe talk to the client again about referral or maybe you fixed it and it's all better. But there are some times that we, you know, for lack of better words, need to suck it up and get over our fear and, and maybe try it and just communicate that to the client, right? If this is something you've never done, say, listen, you can either go to this hospital where a surgeon can place it. I've never done it before, but I am willing to try it. These are the possible outcomes. Do you consent? And as long as the client understands what you are offering and you've made all of the possibilities, you've laid them on the table, then you are still doing right by that pet and patient. You're still doing right by the client because you've given them their options. This is such a fantastic conversation. It really could go on for hours, but you know, Dr. Bowen, I think you've done a really terrific job about sharing with us passionately the potentially life-saving benefits associated with the proper nutrition at the proper time in a critical case scenario. So I think we are closing out on our time for this podcast, unfortunately. It's been really terrific and can't thank you enough, Dr. Bullen, for being present with us to talk about this. Dr. Datz and Dr. Sprinkle, thank you also so much for your time and, and for your input. This has been a really great conversation. Thank you for having me again. Thank you, Brenda. Thank you, Lindsay, for being our guest. Until next time.